It is so good to be back in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen? Amen. I'm just so grateful for the ways that God has been moving in our midst. Uh, grateful for an incredible prayer and worship night we had here on Tuesday for those of you who were able to join us. And definitely grateful to see some, some new faces, some new guests. Uh, man, just grateful all around this morning. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Ryan. I have the blessing of serving uh, here as the lead pastor and also have the blessing of preaching from God's word this morning as we continue in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. I've titled this morning's message, Idol Culture. Idol Culture. And the reason why I've given this morning's message that title is because as we've been preaching through this uh, Kingdom Culture series, I've honestly found myself kind of struggling with what to call this culture that we're living in. We know the culture that we're, that we're trying to, to bring to the world is kingdom culture, but what do we call what we're living in right now? Well, for being honest, there's probably a whole lot of words, a whole lot of adjectives that we can put on this culture that we're living in. But as I was studying for this week's message, I, I just realized we just got to kind of call it what it is. It is an idle culture because we live in a, in a culture where we are encouraged we are pushed, even manipulated at times, to worship things that don't deserve our worship. We live in a culture where we're promised satisfaction and we're promised fulfillment from things that are unable to really give us that nourishment that we're looking for. These things that are unable to meet our deepest needs. And what makes this culture so, so dangerous, this idle culture, is the fact that there are so many things that look as though they might fill our needs. There are so many things around us that look that they might satisfy us, that they might nourish us, right? To give us the, the peace or the comfort or the strength, excitement, whatever it is that we're looking for. All those things look that way. But in the end, none of it has the ability to quench our deepest thirst. Brings to mind for me, the situation that the Olympian runner and uh, army pilot, Louis Zamperini, found himself in uh, during World War II. Some of you may be familiar with this story, but Louis Zamperini, he found himself uh, with a couple of his soldiers shot down uh, over the Pacific Ocean. And so these, these three soldiers, they were left uh, floating on a small raft trying to survive. And all around them, there was 64 million square miles of nothing but water. And yet, these three soldiers, they were slowly dying of thirst. See, all around them was something that looked like it might nourish them. All around them was something that looked as though it might sustain their life. But in the end, if they were to rely on it, if they were to consume it, it would lead to their destruction, even to their death. So for 47 days, they resisted the temptation to drink the salt water that surrounded them. For 47 days, they, they survived off what little rainwater they could capture as they persevered by not giving in to the, the momentary little satisfaction that that water would have had on their lips. So the question I want to ask you this morning, family, is how can we find that same endurance? How can we find the strength we need to resist the idols that exist all around us? All these things that promise to satisfy us, but in the end never can. Well, the good news is, is this morning we're going we're gonna to look to the words of Jesus because he's going to provide us a better way. But before we do that, family, let's come before the Lord with a word of prayer. Ask him for his help. Would you join me? Father, we thank you this morning. 
Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word, for your Holy Spirit who enables us to receive its truth. Would you speak to us this morning? Lord, would you reveal to us the idols that surround us and would you point us to the satisfaction that can only be found in you? I ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Well, this morning we are going to kick off, uh, pick up right where we left off last week, which is uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, the very beginning of chapter 10. And what we're going to see in chapter 10 is that Paul is going to change uh, his strategy a little bit. If you were here last week, you remember in chapter 9 that uh, Paul actually presents himself as sort of the example for what it looks like to carry kingdom culture out into the world. He gives us an example for for what to emulate if we want to see others reached with the gospel. Well, this morning, we're going to look to chapter 10, and we're going to see Paul present a sort of a a bad example. He's going to draw back to the Old Testament to show the Corinthians and to show us what it looks like to be influenced by and to give in to idol culture. So we're going to look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have your Bibles or Bible apps, you can follow along. Otherwise, we'll have it up on the screen. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 this morning. It says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what Paul is doing here is he's telling us a cautionary tale. This cautionary tale of the Israelites and their time in the wilderness. And the reason why he points back to their downfall is because he's seeing some of these same patterns emerging in the Corinthian church. It's this pattern where God provides for his people, but his people in response are not pleased with what he's provided them. And so they go in search of something else to fill that need, rather than trusting on the God who is the one who is providing everything that they need. And honestly, this is the the pattern that really all of mankind falls into which is why Paul felt it was so important to call out to the Corinthian church and why we, as we were building this sermon series, felt it was so important to call out here today. Because what this pattern will lead to is followers of Christ being influenced by and eventually giving in to the idol culture that surrounds us. So I want to take a closer look at this pattern because I think we will see a little bit of ourselves in each of these steps here. My hope is that we will avoid some of the same traps, some of the same temptations that the Israelites faced. And of course, that we might avoid a similar fate as some of them faced. 
So let's start by focusing on the first sort of step in that pattern. The thing that always happens first, which is that God provides for his people. God provides for his people. As Paul retells this story of the Israelites in the wilderness, what we see first is how faithful God is. We see what a good father he is. We see that in a few different ways. The, the first way we see, for starters, is that God was present with them. It's a simple truth. To be a good father, you've got to be present with your children. Amen? And we see that here. Paul points us to Exodus chapter 13. He says they are under the cloud. We see that Exodus 13 verses 21 and 22. That the Lord went before them, the Israelites, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So this cloud didn't just shelter the people, didn't even just guide them, but it served as a very real reminder of God's glory and his presence with his children. But a good father isn't just present with his kids, right? A good father also protects his kids. That's why Paul points out how God protected the Israelites as they, they passed through the Red Sea on dry land. He protected them from the Egyptians. He also at times protected them from themselves. That's why we see the destruction of some that he might preserve and protect the community. And then lastly, Paul calls out the miraculous ways that God provided for his children. He talks about the spiritual food and the spiritual drink, right? the water and the manna that sustained them for 40 years. I don't know how often you guys think about this, but I kind of nerd out on these things every once in a while. I think about the fact that there were over 2 million people. Some scholars even say maybe close to 3 million Israelites that wandered in a barren desert that looked like this. And God provided enough water and food to sustain them. That's crazy, right? That's not just me. Like, there's... More people in, in the Israelite wilderness, right, than, than are in this entire state of Nebraska. And God provided for all of them. They had everything they needed, right? God was protecting them. He, he was present with them. He provided for them. And yet what happens? In the end, only two of them live long enough to enter into the land that God had promised them. Only two. That's crazy, right? Take a look at this. This is a picture of uh, President Obama's inauguration. It's the only picture I can find that had like a million plus people in one shot. This is what the Israelites would have looked like walking in the wilderness. And then this is what it would look like walking into the promised land. You see those little guys? I think there's, hit that next button. They're right there. That's Joshua and Caleb. This is how serious God is about his people walking in righteousness. I think we need to understand the importance of what God is calling us to. So what was it that led to the Israelites' downfall? Well, despite the ways that God had provided for them, what we see next in this all-too-familiar pattern is that God's people weren't pleased. They weren't pleased. And so what happens when you're not pleased with what God gives you? Well, you're going to go in search of it somewhere else, right? So the people of Israel, they went in search of something that they could feel, something that they could see with their eyes, something that maybe even they could control, to get what they want. And for them, they chose a golden calf. Now, in case you're unfamiliar with this story, what happens is uh, Moses, their leader, he goes up onto Mount Sinai to spend time alone with the Lord. This is when he was given the, the Ten Commandments. But apparently he was up there a lot longer than the Israelites were expecting. 
It was 40 days. It was a decent amount of time. But during that time, the people of God, they grew fearful. They grew anxious. They didn't know what was going to happen. They couldn't see what was happening. And so what they do? They went searching elsewhere. And they went to Moses' number two guy in charge, Aaron, and they, they commanded him that, they, that, they, that he build them an idol. Something physical they could see and feel. Something that would, would quench that thirst for comfort or for control. And what I find so interesting about this family is that the people of Israel, they didn't feel like they were turning completely away from God. I think we get that thought in our minds, right? That there was either God or the golden calf. But that wasn't really the case. If you look at Exodus 32, verse 5, you'll see that Aaron proclaimed that this feast that they were going to have in worship of this idol would be a feast to the Lord. So what this means is that they were choosing to blend the, the idol-worshiping practices with their worship of the Lord. They were choosing to live in the idol culture and also wanting some of the, the good stuff that the kingdom culture would give them. Now that's something that none of us can relate to. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted one foot in and one foot out to have the best of both worlds. They wanted all the blessings God could give them, but they also wanted to hedge their bets so that they didn't have to just trust in him alone. And family, the reality is we may not be uh, making sacrifices to, to physical idols. We may not be uh, celebrating pagan rituals, but the fact remains that we are just as susceptible to idol worship today as they were then to have one foot in and to have one foot out. That's why Paul says, do not become idolaters. Because he knew for the Corinthian church, and, and we know for us that the idols are all around us. The idols are all around us. We don't need a golden calf. That's honestly the least of our worries. As John Calvin once said, our hearts are idol-making factories. Think about that for a second. Our hearts are idol-making factories. We have the ability and we so often will look to things in our lives to make them idols, even good things. We've been talking about that throughout this series, how, how good things in our lives can become ruling things and take the place of our Lord. Sex, marriage, jobs, finances, these are all blessings from God. But they become idols when they take his place. And it's not just the important things in our lives either. I'm looking at you, Taylor Swift fans. Y'all are crazy. <laughs> A lot of guys laughing in the room, but y'all spend all day watching football. <laughs> now those two things are joining forces, apparently. It's, it's trouble for all of us. Anyways, here's the thing. I joke a little bit, but the fact is, like, we live in an idle culture, and the, and the reality is that, that there are so many things that are competing for our attention. Not just the music or the movies or the football it's not just our jobs, our families, like literally everything around us has the ability to become an idol in our lives, has the ability to steal our attention from God, to steal our devotion away from him, and has the ability to do that on a daily basis, family. And the reality is, since we are so surrounded by it, we become desensitized to it, and we've fallen asleep to the fact that we live in an idol culture. So what I want to do this morning, just the next few minutes, is just to wake you up to some of the ways, some of the things, some of the people that you may be making an idol in your life. I want to break it down for you this way. Anything that you look to for purpose, for comfort, or for control has the ability to become an idol in your life. Anything you look to for purpose, for comfort, or for control has the ability to become an idol in your life. 
These are the three buckets, the three categories that most, not all, but most idols fall into. Because each of us longs to live a life that is purposeful, right? So we put our hopes in, in getting that job and going to that school and buying that house and marrying that person, thinking that once we get that, once we reach that place, that maybe our life will be worth something. Maybe we'll find purpose there. I saw this a lot back when I used to work with, with professional ballplayers. I'd see guys that would, that would make it to the big leagues, something that they worked their entire life to be the very best at, that they would get there and you would see just this, this emptiness. They'd given their entire lives to reach this point, thinking maybe then they would find purpose. And in the end, they were looking for something that would quench their thirst that never was meant to do it. But the idols in our lives, they're not just things we look to for purpose. They're also things we look to for comfort. Those things we turn to when life gets overwhelming and we just need a little break. And for most of us, it's right here. Let's be honest. Life gets hard. Kids are challenging. Classes stink. Teachers are mean. We all need a little break. This is not where we turn to for it. Whether we know it or not, we instinctively turn to these little rectangles. Anytime we just want a little, little check out. We look to them to bring us, us comfort or to help us cope. There is no shortage of sinful possibilities that are held in this little black rectangle. We go in search of, of purpose. We search for things that will give us comfort. And we certainly search for things that will give us control. And we want to be able to dictate how our lives are going to turn out, don't we? We want to be able to know exactly where this road is going to take us. And so we think that, hey, maybe we can draw up something better than the one who drew up the entire universe. So foolish. It is so foolish. But yet it's what leads to so many sacrificing marriages, sacrificing families, just for the sake of being able to, like, fix their retirement date. They want control over their financial future or control over how other people see them. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to give up that power, to worship whatever idol they need to in order for their life to turn out the way that they want it to. The idols family are all around us. So what happens when your life lacks purpose, when your life lacks comfort, when you feel like you've lost a little bit of control, is that you're faced with a decision of who or what you will bow to. So here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you. Would you this week on your own, in life groups, wherever you can, with your spouse, with a friend? Would you ask yourself these questions? Would you do a little bit of self-reflection? What are those things that I've been turning to and find my purpose in? And find my purpose in my kids and not my relationship with Christ? Have I been looking to, to my phone? Have I been looking to the arms of another person for comfort rather than finding it in the presence of the Holy Spirit? Where are you looking for control? What are you turning to so that you might have a little bit of say-so over, over your future? Or do you need to relinquish control to God? Paul points us back to the Israelites time and time again. It's because he doesn't want history to repeat itself. He doesn't want to see the Corinthian church, just like I don't want to see you, repeating those same mistakes that they made, which is sort of that next step in this pattern we've been talking about. And the people of God aren't, aren't pleased with what God's provided them. What do they do next? Well, they worship the idols that are around them. 
And so what Paul does next here is he gives, he gives a warning. But it's not just a casual like, little suggestion. Paul puts up this big warning sign. It's kind of like those road closure signs. Say basically, if you go down these roads, like you are headed towards destruction. Right? And he throws up three major warning signs. These three major warning signs are really what I consider to be the fruit of an idolatrous heart. Because what happens when you bow down to the idols in your life, no matter what it is, is it'll usually manifest itself in the same way that it did with the Israelites. That's when you're living a life that is either reckless, rebellious, or restless. That's what we see in the Israelites. In the examples that Paul gives us, some of them chose to be reckless, to indulge in sexual immorality. Right? They went looking for that satisfaction, that fulfillment. They went looking for that thing that could quench their thirst in those moments of brief pleasure. They didn't care about the harm it caused to themselves or, or to others. And in the end, Paul says they met their destruction. Similarly, there were, there were those who chose to be rebellious. Those are the ones who just completely went against the authority of God. Said, God, I know you want me to go this way. I'm going to go this way. They didn't follow his plan or their path. And what does Paul say? They met their destruction as well. Lastly, he calls out the restless. Talks about those who grumbled against the Lord. These are those who, who weren't happy with the, the place where God had them in life. Maybe some of you can relate to that this morning. The reality is some of these are probably the same exact ones who at one point, they celebrated the manna that God had provided them. And yet now they were complaining over this mundane meal. Maybe some of you have that job, have that spouse, have that friend, and you once celebrated that. You were praising God for it, and then life gets a little hard, and all of a sudden you started grumbling. Family, this might be the most insidious fruit of all, because what it does is it rots us from the inside out. It rots us from the inside out to where we get so deep into it and once we realize it's there, I mean, it's caused some serious damage in our hearts. So the Israelites, they responded to their displeasure by living lives that were either reckless, rebellious, or restless. And we are prone to do the same, family. That's why Paul, as he's closing out this section, he gives this, this warning that applies to everyone. Because no matter where you may find yourself in life, things may be going really, really well. You'd be like, man, I haven't been tempted to do anything. I'm loving my, 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 my wife. I'm loving my job. I'm loving my kids. Everything is good. Paul still says that we must be careful. We must be watchful. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That phrase, take heed, it means to be watchful, to keep a close watch on yourself. I think the reason why God delivers this message through, through Paul is because he knows how easy it is for us to get our priorities out of order. He knows how easily we can fall into the uh, trap of idol worship. It's about as easy as it is to catch a monkey with a coconut. You heard me right. Let me show you something. I don't know if y'all have heard of this before, but uh, for centuries there's been a very easy way to catch a monkey. Really, all you have to do is you take a coconut like this and a little bit of fruit. And what you do is you cut a hole in the coconut that's big enough that a monkey could fit their open hand through it, but small enough that their closed fist can't get out. You put a little bit of fruit, a little banana or something like that in there, you tie it to a tree, and then you wait. 
Most of you know that, that monkeys are pretty greedy by nature, right? And so what the monkey does, they come across the coconut and they put their little hand in there to grab the banana only to find out that once they close their fist, they can't get it out. And they're stuck. Even when the person or people hunting them approach the monkey, all the monkey does is try to pull its fist out even harder. Never once considering that all it has to do is let go of that special little prize and it would be free. In the end, because they refuse to let go of what their flesh desires, they wind up in captivity. I remember hearing this the first time and being like, oh, silly monkeys. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, wait a minute. And I realize that I'm just as prone to hold on to those things that my flesh desires. How often I put myself in danger just because I won't let go of those things that are putting me in danger. Family, Paul's warning here for the Corinthian church, it applies to us still today. Those of you who think you stand must remain watchful because we are all prone to fall for the monkey trap. Thankfully, there's good news. Right? Thankfully, even when we are unfaithful, God is still faithful. That's what Paul reminds us of in verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Let me say that again. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I love this verse. And what I love so much about this verse is that it flips the script on temptation. And it takes the, the focus off of, of us being tempted our faithfulness being tested, right? And it puts the focus on God's faithfulness being put on display. Do you see that? It becomes less about testing our faithfulness and more about putting God's faithfulness on display. And I think this is important, family, because here's the thing. We have a very real enemy that wants us to feel alone in our temptation. He wants us to feel like we have to be able to, to, to muster up the strength to resist temptation on our own. But God's word tells us in so many ways and in so many places that we are never alone in our temptation. That not only do we have people around us who have endured similar temptation, as Paul says right here, but that we have a Savior who endured the same temptation that we did. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Oh, family, that is good news. That is such good news that because God is so gracious to us, he will always offer us an escape. Right? That even in our, our moments of deepest thirst, when we feel like we are surrounded by nothing but salt water, that Jesus will quench our thirst. That Jesus will provide us an escape and enable us to endure. Listen, family, that strength you need to endure the temptation of what's around you does not lie within yourself. In order to find that strength, that endurance, we have to look to Jesus. It can only be found in trusting him and in drinking of the living water that he came to give. So I invite the band back up. I want to close by sharing about this living water. I'd love to tell you how to find it. In John chapter 4, we read about an encounter that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman. 
at a well. What we come to find is that this Samaritan woman was like a lot of us. She was living her life in pursuit of purpose, of comfort, and of control. And she found what we often find is that there was no shortage of options around her, of things that offered to quench her thirst. Those of you who are familiar with the story, you know where she went to look for that. She went to look for it in the arms of someone, several people. And she came back time and time again to a well that never quenched her thirst, that only left her more thirsty for the things that she truly desired. That is until she encountered Jesus, who offers her living water. Sitting by that well in John 4.13, Jesus tells her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is telling her that the water he has to offer will quench her thirst to where she will never have to go looking for things the idols promised to give her. Well, that sounds amazing, right? Where do we find this living water? Jesus doesn't tell that woman necessarily. At least we don't have it there. We have to look to John chapter 7. And I want you to stay with me here. Because this is where it's going to all tie together. In John chapter 7, we find Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a, a festival that the, the Jewish people would, sell, do, would, 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 uh, would hold to remember God's faithfulness to the Israelites in the wilderness. You guys starting to see the dots be connected. And the priests, what they would do during this, during this festival, they'd have this ceremony where they would go to the pool of Siloam and they would take this, this golden jug and they would fill it with water and they would bring it to the temple. Every day they would, they would pour out some of the water and they would pray to God for salvation. But in this Feast of Tabernacles, they would all culminate on this final day. There would be one really big ceremony. And all of the, the priests, they would circle the altar seven times. They would pour out the water one last time. And they would make one final emphatic plea to God, God save us. And get this, on, in John chapter 7, on the final day of this feast, Jesus stands up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is telling those people who were pleading for salvation that salvation had arrived. That the water that, he, that God provided in the desert was only a foreshadowing of the living water that Jesus came to provide. This living water, John tells us in the very next verse, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. This divine helper who's given to all those who are in Christ, the one who opens our eyes to who Jesus is, the one who convicts us of our sin, who reveals those idols we've been worshiping in our lives, the one who strengthens us and enables us to endure the temptations that lie all around us. This gift, family, is available to each of us. And it's available to each of us because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Because he who was without sin poured out himself to save us from the penalty of ours. So how do we endure? That's the question I asked you at the beginning of this message. How do we resist the temptation that surrounds us in our idol culture? Well, we start by looking to Jesus. We start by remembering his sacrifice for us. And we live our lives in obedience of him 
And out of our hearts, family, will flow rivers of living water.